Welcome to the Evoking History Podcast. We are called as a people to give testimony in the sight of the world to our faith that the future shall belong to the free. Since this century's beginning, a time of tempest has seemed to come upon the continents of the earth. Masses of Asia have awakened to strike off shackles of the past. Great nations of Europe have fought their bloodiest wars. Thrones have toppled, and their vast empires have disappeared. New nations have been born. For our own country, it has been a time of recurring trial. We have grown in power and in responsibility. And welcome back to the Evoking History Podcast. Today I'm joined by Angela Mayfield, a Democratic candidate for Georgia House District 67. She is someone that I have met on Twitter and I've looked forward to having this conversation. How are you doing today, Angela? I am great. Thank you so much, Benjamin, for asking me to be on. And I think maybe this is a good time to just say, just like a big shout out to Trey Wisecarver, who kind of started a, a thing. I know that I was exposed to a lot of really interesting historians doing great academic research through Trey, Carrie Lee Merritt, and uh, and Tristan, and some of the others, and also you. So I'm not sure Trey recognizes exactly how important he's been to a lot of people. So let's just say, like, thank you to Trey Weiscarver. Well, without a doubt, because I wouldn't have, I've always wanted to do this, but I wouldn't have done it without Trey, having started one beforehand. And, you know, just taking that, um, me and Trey, have talked about wrestling. We've talked about history. I've had him on this podcast. We were on a podcast together, and I'm hoping that soon he gets back into the the market because I really do think he has a voice that is needed. Uh, so hopefully he'll re- return to the airwaves, such as they are. I I would love that. I I can't wait to see what he does. I'm so glad that you know I found him at just discovered him as though I discovered him. But when I became aware of him at this point in his career, because I think he's got, I think he's got a lot of really cool years to do a lot of really interesting stuff. And so I really look forward to that. I'm glad I know him. And now I'm glad I know you. Well, thank you. I'm glad that I know you as well. So why don't you tell both myself and the listeners a little bit about yourself? Because honestly, I don't really know you. So, so, uh, so, I am as Southern as they come. Uh, I think you, they, you hide it well in your, your voice. Most <laughs> of people who are Southern as they come have a much more distinct uh, accent. Well, and there's a reason for that. Um, I, I, uh, I grew up in Florida on Florida's Space Coast. So um, as a matter of fact, my mom is still, hey, mom, my mom is still uh, on city council in my hometown of Cocoa, Florida. That's um, awesome. Yeah, it is. Um, Cocoa, Florida has one of the best municipal. Hi, Mama Nan. <laughs> it's it has one of the best municipal water systems in the country, and Cocoa, Florida, city water goes to the International Space Station, and oh, so sure. I'm quite proud of living there. Um, my mom uh, still lives in my hometown, and there is an astronaut who lives across the street, and uh, he's you know spent 
weeks and weeks in the impenetrable silence of space, and now he listens to my mom's coonhounds ball. So yeah, <laughs> um, it's it's an interesting thing. But um, so I grew up there, but uh, but I don't have deep Florida roots. Um, we kind of joke in a lot of ways that shit rolls downhill. And so a lot of people from Appalachia and the cotton South just kind of migrated to Florida <laughs> and that's how my people got there. So, um, my mom's family is from, uh, Anderson, Fentress, Scott County, Tennessee, like right in the middle of a coal hauler. And my dad's people are from around Charleston and Dothan and Mobile, Alabama. So, I, I, I have a solid grounding in both uh, Appalachian culture and also deep, deep, deep Southern culture. And I spent all of my summers here in Georgia. And, um, and I think when you come from long lines of, um, of people who've been in the same place for five, six, seven generations, um, even if you're not a student of history, you're a student of history because you heard it your whole life. And so, um, so it's always been fascinating to me. And I didn't realize that this was an area of study that like collecting stories and listening to the old timers, I didn't realize that it was a thing. And so I grew up listening to the stories of like, you know, all the several ways that you can cook a squirrel and, um, you know, and what it was like to drive, to drive coal down off the mountain and, and you grow up hearing those things and you have an association with them. So uh, I went to college in Boston, though. There was a moment where, I want to say a moment, perhaps my adolescence, where I felt a bit ashamed, I think, of my southernness. And so I went as far north as I could go. Right. My dad used to like to say that I took the first train smoking north. <laughs> and I was like, Dad, I flew. Hello. <laughs> and I went to a to a tiny little independent women's college in Boston, and I had never seen snow when I got there in January of 1999. Immediately got frostbite on my ears. I didn't own a coat, <laughs> so I was not ready for that. Like a Florida beach girl was not prepared, and so I was also not prepared to open my mouth and have everyone assume how stupid I was because I'm not and rather than I think at that point in my life I didn't have the confidence to quite recognize that no this is all part of my identity this is who I am and so instead I was like oh well I'll get rid of my accent so I watched local news in Boston and I repeated everything that the anchor said in a non-regional dialect so, you know, managed to kind of eradicate my accent that way. And I think a lot of us do that. A lot of us Southerners who make it elsewhere. I know you're from Kentucky and you're now in Michigan. Like, did you, did you, do you feel like you ever had an accent at all? Wisconsin. Uh, yeah. Oh, Wisconsin. I'm sorry. No, it's okay. It, my family makes the same mistake. It's all right. <laughs> <laughs> yes. And I think it, it's odd because for the most part, when I was really young, because of my dad's job, and I think I've talked about this before, but fuck, I'm going to talk about it again because it's my show. When I was really young, he worked installing utilities. So he was a heavy equipment operator for utility companies. I don't know the name of the particular company. So we lived for a while in Minnesota, for a while in Louisiana. 
California, Nevada, and then as I got older, and he became a truck driver, an over-the-road truck driver, which he was before him and mom got married, we kind of settled down back where we were all from in the western part of Kentucky, and then we also moved down to Tennessee for a while. That's a long way to say is that I've lived in a lot of different places, including the Deep South, and, and the, yeah, you can't get much further north and be in America than Minnesota. So, yeah, I, I, I do have an accent. It's something that kind of comes and goes. And I think like you, you know, I didn't, as an adult, I didn't move off until I was in my late 30s. So I was, I guess, more comfortable in my identity, even though there had been moments where it slipped out and I had been embarrassed. Like, I remember I was in reading seminar and we were reading about World War One and the Treaty of Versailles. And if you know anything about Kentucky, Kentucky has a, you know, Louisville is named after King Louis. So there's this big Francophone part of Kentucky. And we have a town that's named after the palace at Versailles, but it's pronounced Versailles in Kentucky. And so I was just reading through and not even thinking about it in my nice, moderate NPR voice. And, and then they just went into the mirrored halls of Versailles and signed the treaty. And it's like, oh, there's the Kentucky slipping out. So, yeah, no, I totally get that. I, I really do. And, and especially if I had done this right out of high school or something, I think it would have been much more traumatic because not that I think we are always evolving as who we are as people, but not having a true sense of identity and then having everybody make fun of the thing that has been a marker of your identity for so long would definitely be rough. Oh yeah, absolutely. If I had, I feel like if I had continued my education in Boston, which I did not, but I feel like if, if I had continued, I probably would have ended up in a degree in a field that I had no passion for. I might've done a master's dissertation on something entirely different. I'm just, I'm glad that I was, I'm glad that I got older before I really figured out what I was passionate about. And so, and what I'm passionate about is the South and equality in the South. I swore up and down, I would never move back South. Oh, no, 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 no. When I was in Boston, I would never come back South. And I also swore I would never live inland. Like, oh no, I'll always be coastal. I, you know, I imagined myself at that point in my life as a coastal elite, that that was, that was an aspirational thing to be, that you're smart and you're wealthy and you live on the coast and very urban, you know, like you've got this urban thing going on and uh, you live in a place that has public transportation, you know, and that's, I think what I wanted because I think that's what, I don't, I don't know how that was communicated to me that that was the thing that, that was aspirational. Maybe it was just that, there was a sense of judgment about the kind of people that I come from. My dad was an over-the-road truck driver. Before that, he was a heavy equipment operator. I have all of my baby pictures are like me on my dad's backhoe or his track hoe or his front end loader or, you know. Yep. And my dad, you know, it, it was this huge personality and big part of who I am. Imagine Paul Bunyan as Florida man. So, like... <laughs> So when I say, like, my dad wrestled a bear in the mall, like, we have pictures of that. Like That is awesome. My mom will tell you about the time he brought home 
part of an alligator, but I'm not really sure which part. And like just like wrapped up in like a uh, like a piece of newspaper or something, and was like, "Here, cook this." And she was like, I don't know, I guess I'll clean it like a fish. And she was from Tennessee. So she had no idea how to actually. Gator meat is quite tasty. Oh, I love it. Very flaky. I'm I'm a big fan of gator. Um, Me too. You know, more than one recipe for rattlesnake, which my mom says, I've never had it, but my mom says it foams when you boil it. So I know, right? I wish I had never known that, but if I have to live with knowing it, so do you. <laughs> well, the thing about it is, is I've had rattlesnake. Have you? Yeah, one time when we were going through Texas, we just stopped off at this little roadside joint, you know, like you do, and they had grilled rattlesnake on a stick. I mean, <laughs> it was good. <laughs> but it's, That's a very Texas thing with the snake roundups yeah. and, I yeah, mean, yeah, yeah. which we realize now ecologically is a terrible thing. But then again, I remember asking my dad if he had ever eaten manatee. And he he said yes, and then he explained how they're slow and easy to hunt and free protein if you're poor. Yeah. Um, and long before we understood, you know, long before we had any sort of, long before poor people were, were in a place where they could kind of embrace conservation, they're just trying to survive. So, and I had, I also asked my best friend from my hometown who is, has completely different roots and has always been in Florida since actually since the Spanish, since Fort Mose. He, he is a descendant of, uh, of free black settlers from Spanish colonial times. So his people have been on the East Coast in Florida since dogs could talk. So I asked him, like, hey, did your dad ever say that he ate manatee? Did your dad ever do that? And my bestie was like, yes, and he explained it, and this is how you do it. And it was identical. So yeah, it's, yeah, it's funny to me. Um, now, as a truck driver, did your dad ever cook anything on the block of the engine? I don't know that he did as a truck driver, but before he became a truck driver, he worked in the mines, <sighs> Kentucky, and they would do that. They would. He wasn't down in the mines themselves. He was like an equipment operator, more towards the top or whatever, but they would do that. They would bring their lunch and wrap it in tinfoil and set it on the engine blocks of, of whatever machinery was there and cook it. Yes, absolutely. My dad, one of my dad's favorite things was, was, you know, he's, he's running a, a backhoe, a front end loader and smoothing grade. He, he would run like a, a grade all, a motor grader. Um, and so when he would work with a paving crew, there'd be an asphalt truck. And it was, it was exciting. Like the, the thing about having an asphalt truck means you have a slow cooker. And so yeah. he would, he would bring a steak and a potato and like tuck it into the into the asphalt and let it cook and then it's lunch and you have steak for lunch and so he has this he had this story that he would tell about the time one of the other guys one of the other crew saw him do this warm his lunch up in the asphalt it was like that's a great idea so he brought a can of chicken soup and put it in the asphalt to warm up and then forgot about it and it went through the spreader and exploded all over another guy who thought that he had been attacked by brains because of the noodles. So, uh, yeah. so this is, you know, there is some sort of, I think at a time in my life, I would have been less appreciative of that hillbilly ingenuity mm -hmm. of mm -hmm. get by, make do, repurpose. It's, 
it's interesting the intersection between those skills that they learned because they had to and these these sort of like practices that we're readopting now for totally different reasons like you know my grandparents had yard birds but not because not because they you know they wanted like fancy chickens or yeah no it was definitely a survival thing like it was sure yeah it's it's very it's very different now that people have backyard chickens and are are growing their own things so um for it's, various it's, reasons it's kind of a nice return uh, there are a couple of things that i want to, to comment on and then, then i'll uh, come back to it because when you were talking about the manatee and everything like that and the eating of snake and possum and what eels and eels are fucking terrible that's probably the one of the worst things that uh because my my maternal grandfather fished all the time and he actually was kind of a professional fisherman on the rivers and lakes in west kentucky and he would catch eel and you know you were talking about squirrel and he always always my grandmother and i never did this but i did have the eel and it was gross because it kind of turns rubbery after it's cold and blah. anyway uh, and I, I'm willing to try anything. When I went to Iceland, I had the fucking rotting shark, and eel is worse than that. But there's this whole concept throughout the global south of of bush meat, which is just a catch-all for any meat that can be scavenged, uh, scavenged or hunted to provide protein for people, monkeys, and rats, what have you. And it's not that much different than what. I don't necessarily know. Well, actually, I do. My grandparents, I mean, my fuck, my, my grandfather, my paternal grandfather, grew up during the Great Depression with seven siblings. So, you know, I'm, I'm sure there's a whole lot of bushmeat that was going on then that we just don't know about, that, that people don't talk about. And, and like you're talking about, people having chickens in the yard and, and all these other things. Or we all have the stories of, and this is kind of ubiquitous throughout the country, both. You know, my grandparents didn't really trust banks, so they would hide money around the house and all this other stuff. That is a legacy of that. Anyway, back to my, <laughs> I got distracted by myself. My uh, maternal grandfather, one of his favorite things to do was to eat squirrel brains. Oh my God, are we cousins? <laughs> we might that, be. <laughs> that was my nanny. That was my nanny's favorite thing. My my maternal great grandmother. That that was her absolute was the brain like that was like mm -hmm. as though it's almost like when you get like a, a whole chicken and you get that oyster meat and that's just the mm, right what is it with squirrel brains please explain to me the brilliance of squirrel because I've never had it but I I never had it either but because it got to a point by the time that I I can remember anything that they weren't hunting squirrels anymore to for him to get but yeah he would get them and crack the little heads open and suck them out like you do a you know, like I would do with a crawfish or something like that. So yes, yes, and there was there was no hesitation about it. It didn't. Nobody cared if something was cute. Like, and, and I I don't know how necessarily to explain to people the kind of um, food insecurity and abject poverty that causes a mentality like that. My one of my grandfathers. My, so my dad was adopted, and it's a really complicated family history, which is really common in places where there's haulers that you can't get out of and so you just yeah same families for long times um but so my dad was adopted within the same family to a different side and so i have these two paternal families and my uh my mobile grandfather um would often say that like the the what qualifies something to be edible is does it fit on a biscuit 
So at one point he he got a fawn, you know, like I think he had a doe tag for for that deer season. And if you take the doe, you might as well take the fawn too. And you know, it was like, Pop, you're not supposed to you're not supposed to eat the fawns. You and very, very matter of fact, like it'll fit on a biscuit. If it fits on a biscuit, it's good protein. When my mom was young in Tennessee, in Clinton, Tennessee, in Oliver Springs, right in the middle of the coals, she she had a, a, a favorite pig among the family pigs that little three-year-old little curly-haired Brenda would, would kind of push the other pigs away when they would slop the hogs so that her pig Petey got the most because he was her favorite. And so she would kind of like poke the others with the stick so Petey got the most. And they slaughtered Petey first. Yes, I say that backfired, but she didn't know it at the time. And her grandfather said to her, we had to kill him, you loved him too much. Which it was, oh, you overfed him, he was the fattest, of course, but there's there's a, a hardness of survival in that, that like, I don't know if it comes from like a, a, a vulnerability or a sense of, of insecurity, um, but these were holler people and yeah. yeah, we had to kill him, you loved him too much, we were always going to eat Petey. So, so yeah, I come from, I come from that stock of people and, and I think those people, those people still exist, we still exist. And there is kind of a an underrepresentation of the the mend and make do equality. You know, the you're not going to edit this out, and I'm just going to stumble over my words for a second. But uh, I, I probably will edit that out. <laughs> I, I agree with you, and I, th- I think part of it is to you know, and I kind of harp on the Great Depression because I remember my grandparents telling me about that but even before that i mean we had recessions in the 1870s and 1880s and everything like that you and myself are only a couple of generations removed when people had really large families a because there wasn't a whole lot of good contraception and having sex is fun but b you know you needed large families to work a piece of land and also child mortality rates were pretty high so it is one of those things you can't get too attached to a piece of livestock because it might come down to your children dying or you eating their favorite pig. And, and so I, I completely get that. And I think that's also why we see so much, you know, people make fun of certain Southern dishes like pickled pig's feet and everything like that. But it's because or gizzards, chicken gizzards, what have you, chicken necks. But it's because people had to, not only did they have to eat weird stuff, quote unquote weird stuff, but they also had to use almost every piece of the animal that they had. Everything to, to yeah, yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. Which, you know, to that end, I just want to point out, like, some of that stuff has gotten, you know, a little bourgeoisie now. And I don't know oh, if sure. you've seen, I don't know if you've seen the price of neck bones or oxtails, <laughs> but they are way high a pound uh, neck neck bones and oxtails and those parts of the meat that you know that was always like the scraps the leftovers but um did you with with your extended family did you notice like as an adult now I can kind of look back at the behaviors of my grandparents and I had all four of my great grandparents on my mom's side until I was a senior in high school and I spent a lot of time with them loved them dearly and learned a lot from them 
I'm now as an adult, I'm able to recognize so much trauma, like the PTSD, like the, that these people carried through their lives about unplugging every appliance because they were, because they, you know, lived through a house fire once or the hoarding of string and yarn. And like, just the, there was, they kept preparing for inevitabilities of disaster um, that they were always expecting to have to fight to survive somehow. And it really kind of affected all of us, I think down, like there's, you know, I think some of us from the great depression, you know, people who were raised by people in the depression, we're still carrying some intergenerational trauma about food insecurity, money insecurity, things like that. So, uh, and I think we see it a lot here in the South and Appalachia. Well, yeah, no, I, I agree with you. And I I want to say that it's, pro, you know, again, I, I lay a lot of it on the Great Depression, but until we got to talking, and you had mentioned listening to one of my previous episodes with Tristan and talking about just the influence of the Cold War, because not only had they lived through the Great Depression, but the fuck they'd lived through, depending on their, you know, the age, World War One and World War Two, and just seen massive devastation, not necessarily here, but over in Europe. And there was food rationing here. We forget that. So, I mean, there was a lot of shit going on. There were vigilante groups who were marching up and down. We, we hear about Japanese internment during World War One and, and around those environments. They would round up Germans and hang them because they were, I mean, not a lot, but it did happen. So there was a whole lot of various internal pressures, not to mention all the racial stuff that was going on during this time, which also colors, we're both white, but it colors our, the South and the regions that we grew up in and just the way that we talk, like the, the myth of the, everybody has a little bit of Cherokee and then to cover up the fact that there was a lot of African-American bloodlines mixed into people through the rape of enslaved peoples and, mm-hmm. and just to cover up the shame of that. So there, there's all these things. So, yeah, my uh, grandfather kept all kinds of just weird crap that were laying around. So, like, oh, well, let's not throw that away. I can do something with that and and would. And I get it. I really do. I, I think you're right. I think it is a trauma that forces ingenuity that is born out of poverty and food insecurity. And you're seeing the worst of society. I think, and I think this is true of people living in poverty everywhere, but like, you know, especially I see it now in Georgia, people living in in poverty here around me and further in South Georgia, especially, are some of the most resourceful and creative people I've ever seen who do the most with the least and should not have to, but but poverty kind of creates, you're right, an ingenuity of, of survival because you have to. And so, you know, I think that that's a thing that's underappreciated about, about the working poor and people who, who grow up in those environments of, of need, that it does create a bit of ingenuity to, uh, to get by. Like, I know that you had mentioned that your people ran shine, my people also ran shine and made shine. As a matter of fact, there's this great story about how my my great great grandfather shot three revenuers, a, a father and his two sons. They were adults and uh, and they were actual law enforcement officers. And he said, "I'm going to shoot the Doherty's," and shot 
all three of the Doherty's and uh, because they had stolen his still. Now, they didn't bust his still. They stole it, and they were going to run it themselves. So he shot all three of them because you don't mess with a man's income and his ability to feed his family. And if he's feeding his family on moonshine party liquors, then that's fine. That's an honest kind of – it was considered an honest labor, uh, maybe maybe less legal, you know, maybe illegal perhaps, but it was still not considered immoral. And I think that, they're, you know – country people make a difference in that that like there's the more you know what's right and what's legal and so uh he shot all all three of them shot all three cops shot three cops sentenced to 25 years i think was let out of brushy mountain seven or eight years in had his sentence commuted by the governor after he killed three law enforcement officers later opened a tavern himself and was murdered on the day that my grandmother was born, which is also my birthday, strangely, by a couple of guys from Lenore, North Carolina, who had come across the border into Tennessee to get back at him for those killings. And now, three generations later, I am married to descendants of those guys from North Carolina who came across the border and shot my great great grandfather on his knees. It's weird. It's weird, but like that's my great. Just a little Hatfield and McCoy. I I have a picture on my phone that I keep in a folder of like three dead guys in their boxes, like because it was in the paper. And so yeah. um, it's weird that we have these associations with it, and we almost romanticize moonshine. Junior Johnson, like won the Daytona 500, did three to five in the federal pokey for shine, came back out, won another 500, and then he had like a ham empire. So like we kind of romanticize moonshining without recognizing that's also what, like they were the drug dealers of their days. That's what it was. It was, uh, you know, an illegal way of gaining money when you had to. It was do what you can to get by. And so... It, it tracks and it maps to experiences in poverty now. It does. And it's it's always funny to me. And I know it's just because it's a couple of generations removed, you know, and as you, it's kind of the immigrant story, not that these were immigrants, but it's, it's a, a steps away from poverty that as you become more acclimated into the society, you support the society in ways that you, you're, forefathers would not have, not because they didn't love the place, but because there were the necessities of survival. So today we can listen to, as people who grew up around moonshiners and stuff, and would have considered themselves law-abiding, even though they were breaking the law. But there was a difference between a good law and a bad law, and bad laws were just meant to be, they, they weren't, there was a difference between law and justice. And you wanted justice, not then the law had very little to do with it. Yes, that yes, that is an extremely salient point. There is, and when you say that, there's a difference between the law and justice. There was a, a line in Jimmy Cart. Here we go. Like somebody pull my string on Georgia and I'll just go off. Um, there was a line that Jimmy Carter said in his gubernatorial speech when he was elected governor of Georgia. And the thing that, that made that speech really notorious was that he was following a tremendously racist governor, Lester Maddox, like 
really swung for the fences. He was an overachiever on being just as loud and wrong as he could be. Here comes Jimmy Carter. So the thing about his, his uh, I think it was 1974, 73, 74, about his gubernatorial speech is that he said, I say to you today very plainly, the time for racial discrimination is over. And that made the front page of the AJC for like four days. They were like, oh my God, he's not as racist as we thought. What are we going to do? But <laughs> But, but that, to me, is not the best part of that speech. There's a line in that speech that, like, almost makes... I have chill bumps thinking about it, because it almost makes me cry every time. And he said, the purpose of government is to make it easy for man to do good and hard for them to do bad. Just to guide the ability of people to, to do well for themselves and their loved ones and help prevent them from doing harm to others. And I think that that very, very broadly, like that seems like a small government, you know, right. that seems like a very like, you know, hands off small government principle that, that of self-determination, but like the government is there to support you in doing well. And I think that was an expectation for like, you know, my grandparents who were running shine. If the law wasn't helping them, if the law is there to help us, laws are put in place to protect us and help us. If those laws aren't helping us, if those laws don't protect us, if they prevent us from providing, then we just don't abide by that law. Right. So, there, you know, and, and we think of that as kind of, you know, you know, they were plucky and they were good old boys and stuff without realizing like, yeah, but like now in, you know, in a really carceral system, there's... I can't think of anybody in my family who would not have been in prison at some point by now. Like if, if it wasn't, you know, if it wasn't for the fact that we, we exist in today's world with our own white privilege. Yeah. Everybody I know has, has done something that would have, that would have gotten them imprisoned. Well, I have, I, I don't think that I've ever done anything super duper cartoonish illegal or anything, but I've had interactions with cops that I realize if I wasn't white could very easily have gone another way. And I, I'll, I'll tell you a story. My mother, before she passed, she had a, a stomach issue that led to malabsorption. So she couldn't absorb nutrients from foods completely. Well, that led to her getting osteoporosis early um, in her 30s, and by the time that she was in her 50s, it was leading to mental health issues. Well, one time she had a mental health breakdown and thought that the entire family had been killed at the at our trailer, and she called the cops, the Kentucky State Troopers, and some local cops show up. She meets them on the back porch with a BB gun that looks like a little rifle in one hand and an unloaded revolver in the other. And you can't tell me that if she had been a woman of color, that it would, which it de-escalated, did nothing happen other than they, they took her to a mental health facility, that if she had been a woman of color, that that, she probably would have been shot dead, is where I'm going. I mean, yeah. there's, there's no yeah. way to pussyfoot around that. No, and, and we all know that. and. Yeah. And we've been knowing it, and we're just now mm -hmm. talking about it. I'm really sorry about that too, and that I'm sorry about your mom, and I'm sorry that that happened. That was really traumatic, and she must have been really scared. And I hate that she went through that. I also hate that we have 
a system that criminalizes mental health issues. And this is this is one of those things that I think there comes a point when you're so liberal, you get your guns back. <laughs> then, like you can go so far left that you get them back. This is one of those things where I kind of I, I butt heads a little bit with. Uh, you know, other candidates or other people that are generally within my political circle, because I don't support red flag legislation, mainly because I don't think the cops need another tool to marginalize vulnerable people and to hurt vulnerable people. And they're never going to catch the people that they're looking for with the red flags because they look like them. So, you know, they're never going to look at a guy who looks like them at 17 and go like, oh, yeah, he's he's that kid's trouble. We should get rid of his guns. It's, oh, he's a good kid. You know, he'll grow out of it. It's a different situation for people who have mental health issues or, or you know, people of color or people who are immigrants and speak a different language or whatever. And I cannot, in good conscience, allow allow another another tool of oppression for people who are struggling and I hate that we criminalize mental health so um yeah that was one of the, the uh, amongst many things it's one of the worst things that came out of the Reagan presidency is his just gutting of the mental health of this country yeah. and the breaking the unions but yes and and also did did we seriously name the national airport after the president who fired all the air traffic controllers? Yeah, for real. We really? talk about a slap in the face. <laughs> like definitely like the, the shade of that. Yeah, yeah, exactly. But I landed here in Georgia. Like, you know, I have all of these Southern roots and, and here I am in Georgia and I'm, I'm running for office in Georgia because I see, I see my neighbors deserve better and I don't want to leave. I, you know, I left the South before and I came back here and I love it here. And so I see those people that we talk about, you know, from the Great Depression and our, our greatest generation people, those are everybody's mamas and papas. That's yeah. your mima and your peepop and your pop and your nanny and your granny and your gma. And those are the people who are suffering right now in a rural healthcare crisis. And so um, that's my main focus is, you know, like I'm running for office for everybody. Like I'm here for mamas and papas because I think that, I think that we can do better by them with well, regard to health and mental health, safety, um, preventative care, things like that. Yes, I, I'm glad that you feel that way. And if I lived in your district in Georgia, I would certainly vote for you. That's one of the reasons that I wanted to have you on, other than, you know, just to, to hear some of your stories about mountain feuds and stuff. But, uh, <laughs> you know, I, and I'm politically active. I, I technically kind of always have been because my paternal grandparents were like super uh, politically active. They were Republican and, you know, met with President Reagan and were invited to Bush One's inauguration and all this other stuff. And I've kind of gone to the dark side, I guess, and that I have become increasingly more liberal or more leftist, depending on how you want to cut your definitions as I've grown older. And I think that, the, that there is, I think that politics and voting really, really do matter. But I also just see the ineffectualness of government. And it's a, a hard thing. And I think we do need more people like you in the local government, because I think that that's where it falls down. 
honestly, is so many people are focused on the big picture and the presidency. And when we have such a catastrophe in the office, I can understand why. But a, a lot of the decision makings that affects people's day to day lives is at the local level. And I don't feel the energy in local elections that there is for the national elections. And I get it, but I wish it was the other way around. Yeah, God, you're 100% right. My my mom would hug you right now if she could. Again, my mom's been on my hometown city council for a long time, and I would never, I would never do that job. As a matter of fact, so when I was asked to run, and I was asked to run, I, I said no, like no. And then I kind of, to be honest, like I'd worked on all of my mom's campaigns from like when I was like 14. Mm-hmm. So you know, I'd been active every two years, every four years. You know, on charter referendums and local elections and it, always very local, like ne- never anything bigger than maybe like circuit court judge. We're talking like really local stuff. And I worked in government in uh, parliamentary procedure and like elected official or, you know, board and staff interactions and stuff between the people who are elected and the people who are hired. And, you know, so I, I had a, a bit of experience in local government and people would ask, when are you going to run? And I'm like, are you fucking kidding me? Never, never is when I'm going to run because I see what you do to to people who, you know, I've, God, I've seen the shit my mom went through when you have to when you have to look at there's a, you know, a dais of five people and you have to look at your neighbor and fight with them in public over things that are, affect people's immediate daily lives, like water bill rates and whether they get street lights or not. I mean, these are immediate you know, definitely like they have a huge effect. Oh my gosh, the millage rate for uh, for your property taxes, stuff like that. And so I swore up and down I would never do it. No, 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 politics is not for me. And it was never part of my plan. I retired at 35. I had been in nonprofit administration and communications for a while. I actually worked for state universities here in Georgia, and I worked. I did some nonprofit administration and fundraising abroad as well in sub-Saharan Africa. Yeah, you know what, I'm not, I realize now that that work was very, was rooted in some colonial and and colonizer principles. I'm not proud of it. I'm glad I learned from it. I'm glad I grew from it. And I learned a lot of things, but it definitely, it, yes. I realize I did the work of the of the colonizer, and I'm not proud of that. So I, you know, I I feel like I can do better. But I retired at like 35 to take care of my mother-in-law, and and become her full-time caregiver, and it was wonderful. We had a great, you know, year, couple of years together. Nobody got a mother-in-law like I did. Like she was amazing, and being a full-time caregiver is really fucking hard. Yeah, it is. Um, it's really hard. And then she passed and shortly, and then I was like, okay, you know, what would be cool is if I go into hospice work, maybe hospice and palliative care, because it's very passionate. When you see somebody that you love very much die a bad death, which I think a lot of people are seeing in their own lives right now, you feel compelled to do something to stop it. And so shortly thereafter, I myself got really, really sick, and I spent about a month in the hospital and had several surgeries, and my ribs sawn open and stuff, and then also needed care. So I spent like a year recovering from that, and then my dad got sick with pancreatic cancer, and so I was able to 
to, to lean back on, on what I had learned as a caregiver previously on hospice and palliative care. And I was able to give my dad a really, uh, a really good death. Everything that needed to be said was said. He was comfortable. And I realize now that there are a lot of people that are in that situation. And as a state, we're not supporting caregivers, unpaid caregivers, especially women. Like it always falls to women, you know, and we have this growing elderly population and people who, you know, are trying to work their own jobs, but also care for their elderly, you know, and we've got to expand Medicaid. We really, really do. And, And so, you know, it was never my plan to run for office. I wanted to sit here on my quarter acre of beautiful red Georgia clay with my pecan tree and my scuppernong vines. And I wanted to work on my truck. That's all I wanted to do. And I considered going back to get like my automotive certification because I really like working on a Chevy V8. So I was just going to tinker on my truck and grow hybrid tea roses. I never planned to get into politics, but Georgia deserves a whole hell of a lot better than it's getting. So here I am. We, um, we have a, a state income tax rate of, uh, okay, let me reword that. The, the state's budget, all the money the state gets to spend in a year, 42% of that comes from payroll tax. So that's like my check and my husband's check and your check. That's the, that is the lion's share. And if I'm living check to check and the state's living off my check to check, Georgians are putting $12 billion out of their paychecks into the budget corporate taxes are only putting $1 billion in. And I mean, I have a problem with that. I have a real problem with that. I have a problem with promoting the idea of self-determination and work, that if you work, you can be successful, and then implementing tax programs to prevent that success. Yes. Um, our parents, truck drivers, coal miners, they busted their ass and they were able to see some progress they got over you know so they they were able you know later in life to like buy a new car because they had their old age pension maybe and and maybe a little something from the railroad you know and they worked and and they saw the reward for it but we've put in place systems where we expect people now to do that labor with none of those aspirational rewards in the future so but we still tell them those rewards are there and that's the fucking worst part of it and uh, I'm sorry to hear about your dad my, my father also passed away of cancer so I, I can understand and we he thankfully was able to die at home which is what he wanted to do so I completely understand that but, but you're right I mean the tax structure of this country is completely fucked and it has been for damn near as long as I've been alive I would say because we have gone away from if you looked at the if you looked at the Republican platform of Dwight D. Eisenhower in the 1950s and looked at what his corporate tax rates were and everything like that, he would be called fucking Stalin today. How? How did we pay for a Vietnam War and put a dude on the fucking moon, like, in the middle of an extremely expensive war? Oh, wait, taxes. Taxes is how we'd... And build an interstate system. And, like... Taxes and it and it wasn't payroll tax. It was you know it was it was corporate taxes, which is exactly where it should be. So yes. um, I, I completely yeah. agree with that. And I realize that we can't go back to the level of prosperity that we had in the 1950s. Everybody wants to look back at the 1950s as a golden age. Well, yeah, I guess if you were a white dude, it was pretty cool. But you know, 
the wives were on a lot of volume and the kids were fucked up and let's not talk about the racism because it was rampant. It's even today. It's still rampant and shitty, but it was even worse then. But part of the reason that we, that we had such an economic boom is the rest of the world was kind of devastated by war in a way that we weren't. So until those countries came back online, we didn't have any competition. However, we still had enough of a corporate tax rate, and there's a, no reason we can't have that same corporate tax rate today other than the fact that they go, well, we'll move out of the country, and we let them. You know, And it's like we, we spend so much time, and I, I get it. We need jobs. We need jobs. People need jobs. I'm a supporter of universal basic income. I don't know where you are on that. Yes, we do need jobs, but we also need to tax the companies to pay for a lot of the things that made the country strong. I mean, our infrastructure has gone to shit. There are, you, you mentioned Michigan earlier, there are what, like five or six dams in Michigan that are at, at failure to to burst because the they were, they were built on the finest 1950s technology, which was great, except it's 2020, so that's 70 years ago. Everywhere you drive, I, I, you know, I've driven all over this country or ridden with my dad back in the 80s and stuff. And But when I drive around now, all the roads are terrible. I mean, even when a road is freshly paved, it's not that great. And I don't blame the the workers who did it. It's just we don't put the infrastructure, the money towards the infrastructure to do it. Everything is going into some asshole like Elon Musk's 401k and to a golden parachute when a business fails. And if you look at during the COVID-19 pandemic, the, the rates of billionaires gained like $234 billion while the rest of the country was at an unemployment rate that was higher than the Great Depression. It's just infuriating. It makes me want to fight the air. Like, it truly makes me want to come out swinging. It, it's absolutely, you know, not, I'm not especially churchy. Um, my dad went into, after he had, both hips replaced and couldn't drive anymore and you know wasn't you know an old guy and aged a bit early you know he he had bad hips like in his 30s because you know he he played the kind of football in high school that is really just organized child abuse and violence (laughs) no face masks leather helmets like that kind of thing so um but in his in his later days, my my dad uh, went into ministry, and so sometimes I like to say that I'm a preacher's daughter, but I was a grown ass adult before he became a preacher. That said, I did grow up. I grew up in a Presbyterian church. Heather Heyer's grandmother sang right behind my grandma in church choir. She has the best. Still does has the best comedic timing of uh, of any lady I've ever met. But um, so. I grew up in a church community. I am not churchy myself. I'm a bit of an apostate. Um, preacher's kids go one extreme or the other, right? But Maybe. when I hear that, when I hear that um, that there are people suffering now, like I mean, it's not even a matter of hearing it. Like when you see that that gain of wealth, it's immoral. Like Jeff Bezos is sinning like like to me that is a moral it's a sin to hoard that much money it's like it's just i can't it gets me on a spiritual level like how fucking dare you how fucking dare you when people are burying their meemaws and papas and yeah how fucking dare you how like 
people are talking about evictions and then you have an eviction on your credit history and you can't get another apartment and like now how are we going to have down payments for houses? Like homeownership, you know, is now completely out of reach for a lot of people because they've blown through their savings if they had it. And yet, um, and yet like the top, you know, the 10 richest guys have like almost, you know, they've added like a third more wealth. I don't think concentrating all the wealth with a small number of people is a good idea because the small number of people who have that wealth are fucking shitty. Like, I mean, well, I hate to say it, like, it's, if I, they're just fucking shitty, that's it. I don't remember who the quote belongs to, but there is a quote that says, if you make peaceful protests impossible, you make violent revolution inevitable. As a historian, I, I, I don't predict the future. However, I will say that just the pure levels of inequality, the the disparity between the inexorbitant wealth of the rich and just the destitution of people in this country, this country that claims that it's the greatest country in the world, that it's the richest country in the world. You know, I I really wish we lived up to our rhetoric sometimes. But anyway, there's no reason. You you mentioned universal health care earlier, and there's – yeah, it's a, a a problem so complex that we're the only industrial nation that can't figure it out. Everybody else has one-payer health care, and it works pretty well. Yeah, you don't have doctors who have big-ass houses and drive three different fancy cars, but they have one big-ass house and have one nice fancy car. I, I can't help but look backwards in time sometimes and see just the the sheer horrific violence of the French Revolution and look at the situation today and, and see some parallels. And I hope we never get to that. I mean, and I'm not calling for that. But when people are, are posting guillotine memes on Twitter or Facebook, I kind of get it. I really do. You know, so one of the things that I hate and like I immediately, it's it's a deal breaker for me is when I see a leftist or progressive or um, liberal say, you know, looting isn't the way, rioting isn't the way. That's, you know, I mean, yeah, 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 yeah. We should, we sh- there should be some racial justice, uh, but rioting is not the way. Then tell me what is the way, because we've tried everything else. We've tried legislation. We've tried calling our congressmen and senators. We've tried influencing everything, but especially after Citizens United, we don't have a voice anymore. At this point, we've tried everything. So if there's another way to if there's another way to end this disparity, the depravity of this level of disparity between people who have and do not, if there's a way to close that gap, tell me what the hell it is. Because otherwise, this is how else can we get attention? And I say we, even though I have not been in the streets, uh, I am my left lung doesn't fully inflate, and I got bad knees, and I'm an old lady. So you know, like I'm totally like anti Antifa. Like I'll be your aunt, and like you know. I'll be there with like snacks and sweet tea, but you know, I'm not in the streets like rioting, but I say we because I've never not in my life been on that side of it, been on the poor side who like the, the side of need, the side yeah. of, of lacking. Um, and, and so, yeah, if there's a better way than like, you know, oh, rioting isn't the way, maybe let's not riot. Well, first of all, it's not a riot, it's a protest. A riot is when the Red Sox lose and they flip cars. Yeah. Um, 
this is a protest. Of Kentucky. <laughs> and it's, you know, it's supposed to make you uncomfortable. That's what it's supposed to do. That's why we demonstrate. That's why we strike. That's, that's why there were unions. That's, um, you know, I think people tend to forget that, that they want, they want peace. Oh, we should do it peacefully. You want to go back to a peace where you were comfortable not observing other people's pain. Now yeah. you're confronted with it and you don't like it. Well, fuck you. Change it. Deal with it. Sorry, but like, <laughs> I'm in West Georgia and they're going to be like, no, but, um, you know, I feel if I stand on the roof of my house or fly a drone, but if I stand on my, on my roof, I can see Alabama to the West and Atlanta to the right. I am exactly equidistant between like, uh, the just like North Alabama and like the center of Atlanta. And these two worlds converge in a place where like, you know, I can see this disparity and it's wrong. I feel like it's morally wrong that there are these two Americas and they are so it's almost balkanized. Like if you think of yeah. it in terms of an historian, it's very much like, well, we're like now a balkanized nation. So, um, yeah, I, I worry about, um, I, you know, as a history dork, my own self, um, I worry about, I worry about the French revolution. Uh, and then I worry about like, well, what if that happened? And then we end up with a Robespierre and like, who's that guy going to be? And they had a revolution and they ended up with Napoleon. Let's not go that far. You right. know, so, <laughs> like I don't, I'm not crying for revolution. I very much want to like fix this problem legislatively because I, I don't, every time there is a war, it is always the most vulnerable people who lose their lives. You know, it's all, it, it's, born by the people least able to bear it yes. and um and those are the people that i'm here for vulnerable people people who haven't been heard um i don't think you know i don't think a a, a civil revolution in the u.s is going to like end well for um you know for like chicken farmers in lower alabama i don't you know i don't think it's gonna i don't think that that's how it's gonna go but i but i worry about it too um what uh, what red flags do you see as an historian? Uh, the first red flag I saw was actually before I was even really a historian. I was just a baby historian in undergrad. And at the time, it was around the two, actually, it was even back in, I'm not, anyway, it was after the 2008 recession. And there was a big run on people breaking into abandoned houses because the housing market had completely collapsed or sometimes still lived in houses and stealing copper wire and selling the copper. And for a, a, a country as rich as we are, and I put quotation marks, air quotation marks up, because the, the nation itself is incredibly wealthy. We have the most number of billionaires, all these other things, which are indicators that you can point to and go, look, America is fucking awesome. America is fucking awesome, but it's also fucking terrible. It's a weird dichotomy there. And I wish we would be a little less awesome, a whole lot less terrible and kind of just be good. But anyway. Um, and that was, I was hearing some policy people to, to talk and they were saying this is the kind of criminality for you know for people to be able to survive this kind of criminality 
is a marker of the global south or the third world or something. It's not something that normally happens in industrialized societies that are as rich as the United States is. So that was, you know, a marker of this disparity, not not great. But I mean, as far as markers of that had me, the things that keep me up at night as a historian right now are a you have two we have become so polarized and in our political thought that you have an extreme right wing that looks to the president and some of them see a, a messiah like figure and he constantly dog whistles to their worst behaviors and then blames the other side for violence, which is an amazing trick that I don't know how he gets away with, but the, the, he does. But then there's also those who don't feel that he goes far enough. Um, there was some um, noise on Proud Boy networks that the president needs to do his job and declare martial law and really go after all these quote unquote rioters in the street. And if he doesn't do that, we're going to, which a lot of that is just hyperbole yeah exactly <laughs> but i i do think you get situations like that that 17 year old kid in or, uh, kenosha last week as we take this who was out there you know he thought he was doing right by protecting other people's property and shot people and i i do think that we have had a low level insurgency in this country well, since the end of the Civil War, if you look at the First Klan and, and various other things, um, and various, various far-right and some far-left violence that has gone on in this country essentially since the founding. But just the tenor in the country, and the heat has been turned up so much by all these factors, by this inequality, by the looming eviction crisis, by people not being able to get their medicine and or any kind of health care and i just i'm afraid that it's reaching a boiling point and to your point both sides kind of throw around civil war and people think of the american civil war it's not going to be like that it's not going to be as nice and neat as two sides in different uniforms firing at each other if something happens it's going to be like you said the balkans or the spanish civil war it's going to be fucking street fighting between Paris people. spring yeah 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 so it it's going to be fucking terrible if something happens and i am really afraid that some violence is going to happen hopefully not to that level but i think some violence is almost unavoidable so well and and i am also worried about that especially between november and january no matter what happens no, between november and january i am concerned um yeah. so let's talk about guns for do you want to talk about guns we can talk about guns let's talk about guns so um there's there's only one real way for a 40-year-old fat lady to get to the Olympics, and that's marksmanship. I love to shoot. I really do. My, I had bad outcomes from uh, from LASIK surgery, or I, you know, I really wanted to go to the Olympics as a marksman. That was absolutely wanted marksman, a marksperson, a shooter. I really wanted to be a shooter at the Olympics. I have, in my whole life, I've only ever shot paper. Mm -hmm. I. Um, 
I think that there's two schools of, there are kind of two sorts of gun people in the U.S. And I think the NRA over the past 30 years has pushed, um, has pushed them apart and polarized them. And there's this kind of middle that's afraid to mention, like, yeah, there's guns in my house or I have a gun for fear of being like, you know, ganged up on from either side, from like, you know, the NRA side or this other side. There's, I think that the responsible gun owners have kept their mouths shut too long. They should have been involved in this conversation a long time ago. So, um, so I called my, uh, my homeowner's insurance company and asked if there was a firearms writer on that I could attach to my policy um, just in case. I mean, I, you know, I have a security system and just for the sake of security, I want to say that like not all my guns are in my house. Nobody knows how many guns I have. So like, please don't come break into my house. You probably won't find them. Um, but you know, I called my homeowners and I was like, I just, I want, isn't there a liability insurance in case, you know, granddad's 12 gauge gets used in a crime somewhere later. If it's like, I'm the responsible gun owner. I'm supposed to be the good steward of mm -hmm. these, of my bang, bang sticks, right? Like these are, I'm, that's my responsibility as a responsible gun owner. I insure my truck and I have uh, liability insurance on it. And it's not even made to kill people. I mean, right. it kind of, it, it's an old Silverado as one of those big, like, you know, square body Chevy. So it kind of is a little bit. It's all steel. So maybe it would like, work in a pinch. <laughs> if needed. I, uh, yeah. sidebar, I bought my truck because it looks a lot like Billy Carter's truck, President Carter's brother's truck. So, but it, I wanted to be able to add a, a liability writer on my homeowner's policy because I know that the vast majority of bad gun owners come from good gun owners. Responsible gun owners do not always lock their shit up and they get stolen out of their cars and they get stolen out of their houses. And that's the way they end up out of the hands of people who swear that they were responsible. Um, so I, I wanted to ensure my, myself against liability, but also, you know, like I have these things in my house that are dangerous. Right. They, and I'm aware of that. And I, I want to make sure that if they're used to hurt somebody, that that I can at least, that there's a policy to make those people whole somehow. And there isn't. There isn't. State Farm was like, yeah, no, we can't do that. That's, that's not a thing. And so I don't under, I'm at a place where I kind of feel like um, we have a, we, we meaning like, uh, so there's kind of like two, like I said, there's kind of two kinds of gun owners. There's the Hank Hills who are very responsible with their guns and you know, locks. Them. And then there's the Dale Gribbles, right? So there's Hank Hill and Dale Gribble. And we've kind of let the Dale Gribbles take over the NRA. My first like shooting certificate came from the NRA because like I had passed my like good, you know, my gun cleaning maintenance course or whatever. And um, that's what it used to be. It was like a rifle safety association. And then it became a money machine. And then it became a dark money machine and then it became a front and now it's a cartel. Yeah. So um, I feel like there's this, you know, guns are part of American culture is never going to go away. There's always going to be people who want to shoot a squirrel um, and eat it so it gets its brains out. Um, so I, I don't feel like um, 
at this point we can have a now that we're so polarized that we can have a reasonable conversation about banning anything but because nobody's going to hear it although i'm open to it nobody needs an ar-15 Nobody needs any, a 17 year old kid does not need an AR-15. My dad blind in one eye and 60 years old did not need an AR-15, but he had one because he could buy it. And that thing spits bullets like watermelon seeds. Nobody needs that. Nobody needs that. As like, you're not gonna go hunt mule deer with an AR-15. You will have nothing left of the mule deer after you hit <laughs> You know, so I feel like there's a place where we need to step in as as responsible gun owners and say, like, you we need to talk about background checks and licensing and stuff, but also about insurance um, and insuring them. Uh, I think that that kind of satisfies the uh, maybe the rights idea about like, oh, let the free market decide. Fine. Let the actuaries decide who the risk is and who they're willing to insure. And. If you're caught with an uninsured gun, the same way if you're caught driving without car insurance, you know, penalties there in that regard. But um, like, I don't want to take anybody's guns away. I don't want to take anybody's guns away. I want people to behave better with their guns. And I don't know how to get back to that place. I don't know what happened that we're so broken that um, that a 17 year old kid could not fucking wait to go hunt other people in another state. Like he's been planning this his whole life. Like it, at that point, like it, we're past the firearm and well into like like toxic culture of something. Like, and I don't know yeah. how to fix that. I don't know how to fix it, and but I agree. The to me, and I get gun control is an incredibly complex issue in it. And some people will say, no, it's an incredibly simple issue, which I don't agree with. But because I think you're right, the gun in itself is just a tool. And it, the gun facilitated, it made it easier for him to go out and kill people. But it wasn't the gun that made him do it. There was something deeper there. And to your point, because I was thinking about this, you were talking about the insurance thing. Because I was thinking about the, the types of insurance policies that I know as that you can get for guns. You can get a policy to protect your guns if they are stolen so that, you know, some people, and I know some people, and I'm not going to disclose how many guns I own. I will say that I am a gun owner, um, and I've owned several different guns over the years. I used to have a um, military firearms collection of, like, I had, like, a a old Egyptian 1893 rifle. That's cool. Yeah, Remington. And then I had like some um, infield rifles from the First World War and, and so, so stuff like that. Um, which I, I sold all of them and went to Spain and took a vacation. But anyway, that's neither here nor there. So don't come up to my house looking for those. Cause <laughs> right. But, um, but yeah, you can get a, you can get a, a, a rider to protect your collection so that if something happens, you're made whole financially. You can get insurance if you have a concealed carry license to help protect you in the case that you ever have to use the firearm to protect yourself, um, which will help cover. It has a liability thing on it. I don't. I don't have a policy, so I don't know. 
um, but I know that it helps cover any um, cost for lawyers and stuff like that. I don't know if it has like a liability for the person who is shot. I kind of doubt it actually. I, but so those are the two kind of things, and it, you know, and. I will disagree with you on AR-15s because I don't consider those so inherently evil at not being fully automatic um, as a Ruger 10-22 because you can shoot that at just as fast. And granted, a, a 22 caliber is not as devastating as the 223 or 5.56, but again, it, it's the the form factor of the gun as opposed to the function of the gun that you can kind of split hairs there. And also, and I'll just go ahead and say this, I don't think that police should have greater weapons than the citizens. Because the police have proven themselves not to be overly trustworthy in their use of force. Um, So all of the, yes, yes to all of that. And by the way, just about AR-15s, like, um, they're completely scary to me because, like, as I look around to see if anybody hears me as I'm about to say this on a podcast, they are so much fun to shoot. Yeah, no, they totally are. So much fun to shoot, right? So, like, um, they just, they, it's, it's like, it's like having a super soaker, but it's bullets, you know? And so, um, that, that scares me because... I don't trust other people, but you're you're right. Like the the gun itself is a really well designed, and um, yeah, yes, you're exactly right. And then of course there's policies for antique guns and and stuff like that. But um, but yeah, they uh, the the ARs are they are extremely fun to shoot, and and I understand I understand where uh, where you're coming from with that. But um, I think. For a long time, there have been people who are reasonable people in the way that, you know, like the, when a, when a jury is asked to decide would a reasonable person do this under this situation, we've never really determined what is reasonable. It's all just sort of considered that we all, you know, we all have our own definition, but collectively it all kind of maps, you know, like what is a reasonable person, a person who recognizes the shared reality outside of everybody's own head, you know, like a reasonable person. And I think reasonable people, like everything you just said is so reasonable. I think reasonable people like that have been absent from the gun conversation because it has been so very polarized. And so, um, so now we have people who want to like, you know, spray bullets in the air. And then we have people who have survived mass shootings. And Mm -hmm. there's like, I feel like for a long time, um, there was that reasonable voice was absent. And so, you know, I am, it's always kind of surprising when somebody's like, wait, you're running as a Democrat and you don't want to take my guns away. And I'm like, no, I don't, I don't want to take your guns away. I don't want to, you know, I want to have a conversation about this. I, you know, I would like for the rest of the world to stop looking at America as a place that constantly has shootings and more like, wow, America has more guns than people and yeah. almost no gun violence. Wow, they're so good at that. Like, you know, like America's got their gun ownership down. They're, you know, I, I just kind of, I feel like that's, and I feel like it's it's possible, you know? I hope. Yeah, I, I hope you're right, because I would like to see that too. and. 
I do think that there are all kinds of reasonable restrictions and limitations that can be put in place, you know, because I'm not, there was a time when I was one of those guys who was like, shall not be infringed. We should be able to own anything. And I'm not that person anymore because just that we have proven that we can't even handle what we do have. So if we had people out here with fucking tanks and shit, it'd be much worse. Um, so yeah, I, I, it, it's a it's a honest conversation that we need to have without again all the hyperbole and the NRA popping up. And there are a lot of people, and I I'm one of them, who point to the NRA. A, if it was any other organization who released some of the stuff that they did, they would be labeled a terrorist organization. And I'm not going to say the NRA is exactly a terrorist organization, but their rhetoric is pretty fucking similar to some terrorist organizations. And. Yeah. George W. Bush sent them, like, excuse me, George H. W. Bush sent them a scathing letter and, like, resigned. What was it in the nineties? Yeah. Like, if George H. W. Bush thinks that you're full of shit, then well, yeah, yeah, that's that's pretty bad when George H. W. Bush thinks you're full of shit. But there's also the fact that, as much as they said that they were fighting for for gun rights, and they wouldn't take on certain cases that were a clear violations of people's rights, such as, you know. Uh, elderly people not being able to have a handgun because they lived in a a place like Boston or something like that, that banned it. Um, And whether you think that that is a case that should be taken on or not, if you're actually going to be for the the right of a citizen to own a gun, that is the kind of case you take, but they don't take that because there's no money in it. But instead they will take all these other cases and it got to the point where they weren't really necessarily fighting for gun rights. They were fighting to, extend the fight of gun rights so they could continually make money and prey on the fear because that's what it is is it's turned into fear mongering mm-hmm. there's always somebody going to come take your guns and are there certain people in the political spectrum who want to come take your guns sure and they're on both sides it's just if they're republican they're not going to come out and say it yeah. but a, a lot of if you look at the history of the checks on gun rights in this country, a lot of them come under Republican governments. And it's because that they, one of the first California gun bans was after the Black Panthers showed up with guns at the California State House because they were for self-defense. And we can't be having that. No, exactly. To your previous point that I, that I missed and I kind of got sidetracked a little bit, uh, the I'm not sure I'm not sure that I'm necessarily in a in a place to say defund the police. Mm-hmm. Because while I imagine a world like that, I don't think that the society we like I don't think society can behave itself in a way that like I just don't I think that we're geared in a way that like we, it would have to be incremental, I guess. Like, I'm willing to entertain it. I will absolutely listen to it. But, like, I'm not, like, I have an abolitionist heart, but, like, I'm not quite, you know what I mean? It's not quite there yet. But what I will say with regard to the militarization of police is that that's bullshit and it's got to stop. Um, you're right. The police don't need fucking tanks. Cops don't need shit to run over people like that. It's way too easy. And it's also not the majority of policing. The vast majority of policing is a domestic dispute. It's like, oh, he's panhandling. It's, you know, it's picking up like, it's shit like that. And and 
I can't abide the idea of giving, of, of militarizing the police in such a way that it not only puts, obviously, the public in great harm, but also the cops themselves, who are often very young, you know, come from working families too. Um, police academy is traumatic. Like they show you videos over and over again of like, you know, people in uniform getting killed or getting run over. It just, it's, uh, my dad was at one point a chief of police in Oklahoma when he did a lot of things, <laughs> dad did a lot of things, but also in 1996, my dad's only brother, uh, his only like grown up with brother, um, was a deputy sheriff in Florida and was uh, months from retirement, answered a burglary call was ambushed uh guy hit him with a chair he didn't see he didn't see the guy coming and the guy took his gun away from him and shot my uncle and um in the front office of the high school where his kids had graduated it was a high school break-in and he walked in thinking summer school starts the next day it's got to be like a kid who doesn't want to go to summer schools so came in and pulled the alarm no it wasn't that and and where he was shot uh was in a place where his vest would not have protected him, but he wasn't wearing his vest because he'd gained some weight. <laughs> he didn't want to ask for a new vest. And if that injury had happened, if that shooting had happened in a hospital OR with like surgeons standing by, he would not have survived. It it severed his aorta and like the, you're done. Like so, so my uncle was murdered. He was a cop and he was murdered. And the bad guy didn't have a gun. The bad guy got his gun, but still, that trauma shattered my family. My grandmother's descent into dementia was immediate thereafter. There's never been another Christmas in that family since. So we we didn't survive it. We didn't get through that trauma. And I know that that's the case for most families who have a murder in their family, whether it's a cop or not. But even coming from that place of like law enforcement informed, you know, we drove trucks and and were cops. It's like all my family's ever been. Even with that place, I don't like. I look at my friends and my cousins who are police officers with access to to these horrific weapons, and I'm uncomfortable for their safety too. You're right. It's this escalation, and so you know, I see situations where. So my mom, back to my mom, my mom donated a canine dog to our local police department, ours in my hometown in Coco. My mom breeds American black and tan coon hounds. So like, like we really do have like hound dogs, but um, she, she donated a puppy and he was raised as a canine. He is the only cop dog who will not tell the cops where your weed is at. His job is to be a courtroom companion for people who have to recount traumatic testimony in de depositions or, or investigations. He's a therapy dog. He's a right. cop therapy dog. And the police chief in that town, I think, spent some SWAT money at one point on an ice cream truck. <laughs> because that's a special weapon and tactic. And most of the kids in my hometown are food insecure. And in the summers, it's like a hot dog and like snow cone truck and cop livery and they come around and like you know i don't necessarily think that all of the solutions are in community policing but i know that all the solutions are not in more bullets and more guns again when so much of community policing is just 
being able to, to find a resource for someone who's just in a bad moment. You're meeting somebody at like the worst moment of their life. Um, you know, they're having a, you know, I just, not every solution can be handled with a gun. And I say yeah. that as someone with a lot of guns, Yeah. you know, every solution doesn't get handled that way. No, and my, one of my best friend's father was a police officer who was killed in the line of duty. So, I mean, I, I completely get that. Yep. And I have a degree in criminal justice. So I'm not, I think that there are certain police forces that should be abolished, but that's because they have such shitty records. Like there is one out in California, I can't remember the name of it, but they have had officers who have chased people down, uh, who have allegedly chased people down and killed them to be initiated into a gang within the police. Oh, L.A.? They have tattoos? Yeah, no, L.A.? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Here in Milwaukee, there was a group that called themselves the Punishers and would like wear skulls and shit and then kind of take their law to their own hand. If you do that, fuck you, 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 you don't deserve the badge. Talk about the time Philadelphia dropped a bomb on a neighborhood. Yep, 1983. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, there's, yeah, we got some issues. I would, I think I would like to start having a legislative conversation about, I don't know. I don't know how you make accountability a thing. I imagine an ombudsman who you know, a neutral agency who produces maybe reports on, you know, on violence or maybe where you can, you can't really go to the police department when the police department is the one that just seized your shit. And we got to end civil forfeit. No, or civil we, we definitely got to do that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That's percent. It is. It, yeah. That's just, and cash bail while we're at it and expunging mm-hmm. records for marijuana while we're at it. Yeah. All of those things. Um, yeah. So I think we're, I think that those conversations, you know, we talk about the Everton window or whatever, but I think that those conversations are are ready to happen, but there's, because of the fear-mongering of people like the NRA and the stochastic terrorist that is fucking president right now, you can't bring these conversations up without an explosion. Like, you, there's, yeah. we're past reasonable talk now. I feel like... Um, the the idea of the loyal opposition of we don't agree but we both agree that we care about this thing we don't agree you know we agree that it's important we don't agree on how to address it the the idea of the lo- the loyal opposition where we we both know that we're aiming for a goal just have to work to get there um that's gone like now it's it's we're we're past that i think in a lot of ways and i don't know how to get back to it I don't either. Politics was never meant to be a zero-sum game, and that's kind of what it's turned into. And one last thing on the police, because when I, again, I don't know about if I'm, I do think certain things do need to be abolished, but when the fund the police is a, a terrible slogan, because that gives people the idea that you are getting rid of the police entirely, I would just like to see some of the, the massive amount of funds that go into at least certain police departments. Instead of going to buy NRAPs, going to get more social workers, or at least have there, there's no reason that in the the police training when you, you know, like you said, um, police academy is very traumatic. But there's no reason that you can't also then, aside from giving them the defensive driving, the firearms training, and everything like that. Which, by the way, 
often once they're on the job they don't get as much money as is going into these police departments they don't get continuing training on the proper use of firearms or or firearms training but you can't also get them training in de-escalation or hire more social workers that are vetted to to show up at when there's a domestic disturbance call maybe have a police officer and a social worker show up and let the social worker work unless it, the the situation is so dangerous that you need the police officer i don't think we'll ever as much as i would like for us to be we will never be a country that doesn't need armed officers and doesn't need certain swats for certain things because the 1986 FBI shootout in Miami and then also the North Hollywood bank robbery and what you had to have cops go into firearm stores and get high powered weapons because the people were wearing body armor that their police issued sidearms couldn't shoot through. That's always going to be a fear in this country. Mm-hmm. It's always going to be a fear everywhere, to be honest. It's just most places have federal uh, federal police officers who are essentially armed like they are military because in a lot of ways they are. Um, But yeah, there's so much that we could do and we could talk about that forever, but we've been talking for like an hour and a half already. So I know we went way over, but I like, this was, this was what I was excited to do today. So like, I'm, we went way over and I'm really sorry about that. No, not a problem. But, um, but yeah, no, I could, yeah, I could talk about this stuff all day. I just, um, I just want, I want better for us. You know, I, I, I love our history as Southerners and Appalachians. Um, I think part of the, the inheritance of that beautiful, rich history that we have um, is to work to make it right. You know, like we, we just, we got to do, we got to do better. Um, we have to do better, much better with regard to equality. So of course, racial justice is a huge thing, reproductive justice, et cetera. But like, you know, right now, um, I'm just worried about holding my country together. Like, I'm not ready to give up on the American experiment. I'm not ready to hit control, alt, delete and go like, okay, let's try over. Let's start over. Like, I, I still want, you know, I still believe in a more perfect union. I still do. Maybe I'm an idealist, but I still really do. I, I do think that you are an idealist, but I consider myself one too, because I, I believe the same. I think that it's great that we have people like you who are running for office and who are attempting to fix the broken political system, but try and make it work again, because like you, I don't think control, control or delete is not a solution. I'm not saying it won't happen because um, I, I have my fears in, in that regard, but that will be such a traumatic experience that it will lead to many hundreds of thousands, if not millions dead. And I would much rather see us salvage the system from the inside, even if it takes a while, than to have something that kind of violent break. Yeah, we have a we have a lot of very dirty bathwater, but there is a baby in there that doesn't need to be thrown out. So, um, which is a horrible analogy, but still, like, um, there's a lot of things about uh, about about here and us um, as Americans, and that includes everybody. Um, whether or not they're papered uh, with their immigration, and of course, indigenous people who were way here before us. Um, I you know, I feel like there, I'm not ready to stop trying 
to to make room for everybody. You know what I mean? Like I'm I'm still still gonna give it the old college try. Like, you know, I live I kind of live right between um, the uh, the Texaco station from the the opening scene of uh, The Walking Dead. Yeah. With the pilot, like that's we call it Zombie Texaco. I live really close to Zombie Texaco, like kind of equidistant between that and the arcade from Stranger Things, like those actual locations. And every time I drive by Zombie Texaco, I think like you know I just I'm not going to be one of the ones that goes out in the first season. Like like I'm going to stay and fight as as long as long as I have fight in me. I fight for my country as long. I'll scratch and bite and and then gum. When I have to, yeah. I'm I'm just I'm not going out in the first season. There you go. There it is. And I'm not going to recite it. I'd like to think they're cool enough that they wouldn't care, but you know, copyright being what it is, the the bitter southerner creed is something that I wholeheartedly believe in. Yeah. And one of their things is believe in a better south, and I do believe in a better south. Yep, abide no hate. That's that's so true and so great. But aside from believing in a better South, I believe in a better America, because it's not just the South that can be better. And I love the South. I hope to, if I had my druthers, I would wind up back down in Louisiana by New Orleans, because I love that fucking place with all the problems that it has, and it has plenty, but every, every place I've ever lived does. With people like you, I have hope that we can salvage this fucking thing. Thank you for giving me such hope. Oh, man, I'm doing my best. I'm just, you know, I'm just going to work from can to cane until, <laughs> you know, and until until I'm old and stove up and give out, uh, you know, I'm just going to keep at it because I don't know what else to do. I love, there's a lot here that I love, and some of it I love in spite of, and some of it I love because of. But, yeah, I'm. you're right about, yes, can we just, bitter Southerner, like, man, that just, it hits it hits deep in my solar plexus for a lot of people. Like, shout out to Chuck Reese and the rest of the crew because, like, God, they get me. Like, oh, man, they get me. So, yeah, I feel I feel so seen and validated by that. So, yeah, I'm, I'm just going to keep plugging along, man. And, and one day when, you know, when there's not, when there's not a, a plague on, you make it down to Georgia and I will bake you biscuits, my friend. Well, I will take you up on that because it's been a while since I've had home-baked biscuits. Oh, I've been a while since I hung out in, in Georgia. My uncle lived and worked in Americas for a while, but that was many moons ago. Well, I I would be more than happy to uh, to show you all of the wonderful and amazing things about Georgia. I didn't start out here. I am flown here, not grown here, but... Um, <laughs> but they will throw red Georgia clay on my bones. I have a low center of gravity and I am quite heavy. So you can't move me. Like you can't kick me out of this place. Like I love it and I'm staying and I'm going to fight for it. Well, if you ever make it up uh, Milwaukee way, I'll uh, show you some of the finer things of the city if I ever figure out what they are and uh, we'll, we'll go from there. <laughs> it's, I hear that there's like a, isn't there like a Wayne's World tour or, or something like, isn't there like a, a I mean, there probably is the tour that they told me about when I got here, but it's because of where I live and I live close to it. It's the Jeffrey Dahmer tour. So as cool yeah. as that is. Mm-mm. I'm going to cross on that one. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much. I have absolutely enjoyed this, Benjamin. This has been so much fun. Oh, I've had a blast. It's, it's been great. Please take some time to promote your social media or your campaign website or anything that you want. 
you can find me on Twitter often just talking about possums, which is like my favorite. Which we did not talk about today, so you're going to have to come back on and we'll do yes. a possum winter episode. Yes, because I absolutely, um, yes. I, I have an idea for a possum caucus, and I will promote that at some point. But yes, so you can find my amazing possum content on Twitter, which is my handle is Pink Rocktopus, because I didn't make it thinking that I was running for office. So this is my personal Twitter account that just became the Twitter account of a an aspiring politician. But you can also find me on the web at Angela for Georgia. You can spell Georgia out or just G-A either way, uh, dot com. So, and maybe, hopefully, you'll find me under the Gold Dome next session in Atlanta representing District 67. Beautiful Paulding and South, uh, South Paulding and Douglas counties. So, so yeah, you will, you will find me there. And I, uh, I hope, I hope to talk to you, Benjamin, again, very soon, because this has been so much fun. We'll definitely do that. Thank you, Angela, for taking the time out today to speak with me. And thank you for listening. I appreciate you. Thank you.